Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, a new podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrects some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. It's July 1917, and a British colonel is traveling through the desert on the Sinai Peninsula between the port of Aqaba and Cairo. But he's not wearing a British military uniform. He's in white robes, riding a camel, and the grueling journey will take him 49 hours with no sleep. It sounds like something out of a movie, and that's because it is. The man is Colonel T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. He's just helped Arab forces capture the port city of Aqaba from the Ottoman Empire. This was my greatest military achievement. It was a decisive win. The Arab tribes, now united and fighting for their freedom, only lost two men while killing 300 of the enemy and taking at least 600 prisoners. But for the Arab revolts to continue, they would need resources, guns, gold, artillery. And when I arrived back at the Arab Bureau in Cairo, it was up to me to convince the higher-ups that supporting the Arab revolt would be in Britain's best interests. It would help us win this great war. It's a romantic image. This British officer riding through the desert in flowing robes. The link between East and West, leading the Arabs to victory, overthrowing the Ottoman Turks. But it's not exactly what happened. In this episode of Hindsight, we hear from one of Britain's and the Arab world's most complicated historical figures, as well as one of Hollywood cinema's most misunderstood. How did Lawrence become this legendary figure? And where did his loyalties lie during the Arab Revolt? Was he truly sympathetic to the Arab cause, or just a colonialist disguised in robes? This is the story of his life, based on documented events and his own words. I never had much luck putting down roots. Not in Wales, where I was born in 1888. Not in Scotland or Brittany or Jersey, or any of the places my family moved when I was a child. Perhaps I have my parents to thank for my feeling alienated. Thinking about it now, I suppose it wasn't their fault. They never married, and so by society's standards, I am a bastard. It was a bit of a shock when I found out why. My father already had a wife and four daughters, and their governess turned out to be the one woman my father was willing to give it all up for. My mum. My father's family name was Chapman. But when they ran away together, he took on a new family name. Lawrence. I was their second of four sons, all born out of wedlock because my father's wife refused to grant him a divorce. In British society, illegitimate children do not enjoy the same advantages legitimate children do. For most of my life, I never found anywhere I felt I truly belonged. So... I lost myself in languages. I learned French, Latin, and ancient Greek. I also developed a taste for adventure. 
As a young man, I spent three summers cycling through France, exploring medieval castles. But it was archaeology that took my breath away. That's what I decided to devote my life to when I went to university. Before he paints himself as a complete underdog, it's true being born out of wedlock may have disqualified Lawrence from some privileges, but it did not disqualify him from studying at Oxford University. In 1909, I turned 21 years old. That was the summer I visited Syria to spend three months touring Crusader castles. It was the subject of my thesis, but it became a labor of love. I traveled almost 1,800 kilometers, about 1,100 miles by foot, and sometimes went weeks without seeing another European. There I witnessed some of the most beautiful castles in the world, and some of the finest hospitality as well. However, the trip was not without its setbacks. One day, I was walking through a market near the Euphrates. A less-than-friendly local heard a rumor that I was carrying a gold watch, and he followed me down a dark passage. I know what you want. Just take it. It's not even gold. The watch was in fact just, copper, just, just but he seemed to it. overlook that detail as he knocked me down and took my revolver. He tried to fire at me. But fortunately, he couldn't figure out the safety latch. So instead, he beat me with stones and made off with my belongings. As hard as that was, it was not as bad as the Aleppo paper made it out when they reported I had been murdered. How absurd. I was a bit smashed up, but I was back on my feet after a few days of bed rest. Whenever I felt like I'd found a place I belonged, this time living like an Arab, there was always a reminder that I did not quite fit in. But thanks to my thesis, I earned a first-class honours degree when I returned to London. The following year, my mentor, Dr. David Hogarth, offered me the opportunity to put my degree to work. He recruited me to participate in a paid archaeological expedition in the Ottoman Empire on behalf of the British Museum. What a stroke of luck for Lawrence to be offered such a prestigious scholarship. Or was there something else at work here? First, I traveled just outside Beirut, where I studied Arabic. If I was going to be managing local workers, obviously I needed to learn the language, and I needed to learn what day-to-day -day life was like. Oh, um, Ofarhon. Ak. After that, it was on to Karkamish, on the banks of the Euphrates on the Syrian-Turkish border. There I was part of Dr. Hogarth's team, which oversaw several archaeological digs. I was mapping the region and working with people from varying backgrounds. Arabs, Kurds, Mongols, there were conflicts, but the most important part of my job was to unite them in a common goal. So, early on, Lawrence became accustomed to uniting local forces in advancing British interests. I gained my confidence honing my skills as a leader of men, and I gained their confidence as well. On one occasion, I witnessed a German engineer beating his workers, and it made me furious. Yes, yes, over there. Thank you. How dare you! These people are not to be treated like animals. They are human beings. I will knock you out if you try this again. He didn't. I lived among these men and earned their respect. And I developed a deep love of this region and its people. 
I learned of their resentment towards their Ottoman rulers, and of their concern over the new railway that would connect the holy city of Mecca with the Ottoman capital of Istanbul and Berlin. This railway would only serve to strengthen the Ottoman stranglehold over the region. The British also didn't want to see any expansion of the Ottomans' power. So it should come as no surprise that this archaeological survey in Karkamish was not in fact an academic pursuit. It was a smokescreen for a different kind of mission. Yes, Dr. Hogarth was a scholar, but he also held a high rank in British intelligence. And when he recruited Lawrence for this expedition, he was not simply recruiting an archaeologist. He was recruiting an intelligence officer. And while Lawrence won't admit this, all the skills he was picking up, learning Arabic, map-making, managing local workers, were essential for working for British intelligence. And then in 1914, war broke out. The British and French and our allies went to war with the Germans and their allies. And suddenly my archaeological work was over, as the Ottomans who occupied the region joined the German side. All of Britain was swept up in the war movement, spurred to fight alongside their countrymen. And I was suddenly, shall we say, between jobs. Three of my brothers enlisted and were shipped off to the battlefields. And once again, Dr. Hogarth called on me to now become an officer of the British intelligence. Now you were an officer of the British intelligence? Not the years working under Dr. Hogarth in Karkamesh? Only now? I was sent to the Arab Bureau in Cairo. It was dry. Not just the desert, but the work. I was in search of adventure, and this wasn't it. As part of my duties, I produced a daily bulletin for our generals. I mapped Ottoman movements in the region. There was plenty of action, but I was nowhere near it. But in the Arabic-speaking world, a movement was growing to rise up against the Ottomans. We heard that Sharif Hussein wanted to create a unified and independent Arab state that would stretch from Syria in the north as far south as Yemen. He had a vision, and he began to unite the Arab tribes in the revolt. And as you might imagine, this revolt was of great interest to the British war effort. Of course, an Arab uprising was unlikely to succeed, but the longer it did, the more it would benefit the British by weakening the Ottomans. The Arabs' goal was to win back their lands from the Ottomans and establish self-rule, to finally create an Arab state. And our High Commissioner in Egypt, Sir Henry McMahon, agreed. He corresponded with Hussein to hammer out an arrangement. Great Britain would back the Arabs in their revolt and support the creation of future territories. And I agreed completely. Not that anyone needed my approval. But unbeknownst to me, and the rest of the Cairo office, a British bureaucrat was secretly working on a treaty with the French, which undermined Sharif Hussein and his agreement with the British. That much is true. The British were also negotiating with the French about what would become of Arabia after the war. They agreed on a secret treaty, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, that outlined how the area would be divided up between France and Britain. But what Lawrence isn't saying is when he knew. It's possible he and his superiors in Cairo were unaware of the Sykes-Picot Treaty when they were making promises to Hussein, 
but he found out about it in the months that followed. And how did that knowledge guide his actions? As the war carried on with battles in Europe and the Middle East, I felt worlds away in Egypt. And the news was getting worse. The British were being slaughtered at Gallipoli, and I received word from France. My younger brother, Frank, was killed in the trenches. A few months later, my brother, Will, was also killed. I couldn't make any sense of this. I couldn't see through the haze of this war. I couldn't see an end to it, and I felt powerless. It didn't seem right that others were fighting and dying while I was sitting behind a desk in Cairo making maps. But I believed in the Arabs' cause, and that changed everything. I was greatly encouraged as the Bedouin tribes under Hussein's command began winning victories against the Turks on the coast. But they soon suffered great losses in the face of Ottoman artillery. And just as the prospects of the Arab revolt looked bleak, I was thrust into it. Lieutenant Colonel Newcomb was to liaise with the Arabs, but had not yet arrived in Cairo. So, right place, right time. I was sent instead. I was finally out of the bureau, ready to kick up sand. My mission was to meet the Arab leaders to help plan for the future of their uprising, which was currently stalled. I met with Hussein's son, Faisal, a man I came to admire and call my friend. He told me what the revolt needed. Arms, ammunition, money. And I reported back to my superiors. And so I became the permanent liaison between Faisal and the British military. I was away from the office, out in the desert, living among the Arabs. I felt as if my potential would finally be fulfilled. And so, with supplies and strategy from the British, the Arab revolt carried on. The Ottomans had trouble gaining a foothold in the region because they had never before fought an army of tribesmen who had no regard for where the battle lines were drawn. As more men joined our cause, our strategy evolved. We resisted the idea of taking back Medina and instead focused on attacking the Ottoman supply lines. At that time, the British held the Red Sea, so the Ottomans were increasingly reliant on the Hejaz Railway to move troops and supplies. And this is where I began to shine. I led raids on the railway, planting explosives on the track to derail the Ottoman trains. I led our men to kill and capture the survivors. These kinds of attacks had several outcomes. Of course, they disrupted the Ottoman supply lines, but they also forced the Ottomans to direct thousands of troops, who would otherwise be fighting elsewhere, to defend and repair the railway. And the robes. Of course. You want to know about the robes? Well, it was around this time I began wearing the Arab thobe and kufia, at Faisal's suggestion. If I was going to be living amongst the Arabs, he said, I should be dressing like them. And so I removed the khaki of my officer's uniform and donned white robes, which were more practical. Were they more practical? Or was it a show? Was he really concerned with fitting in with the Arabs? Or did he enjoy the mystique of being a British officer dressed as a Bedouin?
As strong as the revolt was becoming, not every Arab was fighting alongside us. Several prominent tribal leaders were supporting the Turks and were well compensated for it. They knew how their bread was buttered. But then, as we prepared to attack the port city of Aqaba, Faisal and I met one such leader, Auda Abu Tayyeh, who led a tribal fighting force. Don't you want to govern yourselves? Together, we convinced him to envision a world of Arab self-rule and fight alongside us. And certainly, the promise of gold and riches helped as well. Of course, you would be handsomely compensated for your efforts. With Auda's men, we traveled through the desert from Al-Wej to Aqaba. And we also managed to deceive Ottoman intelligence that believed we were headed toward Damascus. There was one night on the road to Aqaba. One of our leaders suggested attacking a small Turkish outpost called Kithara. I objected because I worried the full moon would expose us. But then I consulted my diary and realized that a lunar eclipse was scheduled to take place that very night. In the darkness, we went ahead with the attack and took Kithara, then moved forward to Aqaba. In Aqaba, it was my idea to attack them by land, as it was a naval port and they would only be expecting an attack by sea. We stormed Aqaba and fought off the Ottoman troops. This was my greatest military achievement, uniting tribes of Arabs, leading them on a midnight raid, and taking an important military outpost. Bravo! This was indeed a great military triumph for the Arab revolt. But it wasn't as glorious as Lawrence makes out. He didn't exactly lead them into battle because he was thrown from his camel, only realizing afterwards that he'd shot the poor animal in the back of the head. It was maybe more Peter Sellers than Peter O'Toole. After the victory, I traveled back to Cairo to notify the British High Command of our success. We've heard about the trip to Cairo before, but it was not exactly as described. And it wasn't like you may have seen in the movie. The 49-hour trip by camel with no sleep? It was closer to 70 hours, and he did stop to sleep. And there was no quicksand. Plus, he took a train for the final 130-kilometer stretch, about 80 miles. I returned with news of our decisive victory. This meant that the British would need to take the Arab revolt seriously. It was not a fleeting skirmish that would temporarily distract the Ottomans for the benefit of the British and French. It was a bold force moving through the region and gaining momentum. But upon my return, I learned the truth. After the war, Britain would not honor their agreement with the Arabs. We were calling for the Arabs to fight for us based on a lie. And I was overwhelmed with guilt. I was a British officer, and I had sworn an oath of loyalty to the Crown, but I also felt tremendous loyalty to these brave men fighting for freedom in Arabia. The Sykes-Picot Treaty superseded any agreement the British made with the Arabs. The success of the Arab Revolt only meant that Lawrence was now playing both sides, working alongside the Arabs as they fought for their own lands, while taking orders from his British superiors who would never honor their agreement with the Arabs. In the months that followed Aqaba, I fought alongside the Arabs in earnest, and we continued our railway attacks. Sometimes a team of our men would walk along the track for miles and physically lift up the rails and tear them off the track. But I was more fond of something we dubbed tulip bombs. 
These clever explosives twisted the tracks in such a way that made them impossible to straighten. What took us a few hours to destroy would take our enemies days and weeks to repair. With a small army fighting against a world power, this was the kind of tactic we had to use. And we used it effectively. We destroyed 17 trains, not only disrupting Ottoman supply chains, but making them think twice every time they traveled. Who is this we Lawrence keeps talking about? Obviously, there was an army of locals, but he wasn't the only British military figure there. There was Major H.S. Hornby and Lieutenant Colonel Newcomb. There was Herbert Garland, the chemist who taught Lawrence how to make bombs. Remember, this was not a campaign, as it often seems, of an Arab army led by a singular British officer in white robes. As the revolt moved forward, the lie was revealed. Faisal found out about the Sykes-Picot Treaty. After the war, France and Great Britain would take over the Ottoman lands, and the Arabs would not be allowed to self-govern in the region. Faisal was understandably upset, and he searched for options that would provide an opportunity for an Arab state. He's putting it politely, trying to preserve the idea of Faisal as a friend. But the truth is, when Faisal found out about the Sykes-Picot agreement, he tried to defect to the other side. He approached the Ottomans several times to offer his army's services in exchange for a piece of Arab territory. But he was rejected. I loved these people, and I had failed them. Failed them? Or betrayed them? I truly believed there was still a chance for redemption. The British were fighting along the Palestinian coast, and the Arabs moved their campaign to Syria. It was possible that if the Arabs reached Damascus first, Syria would be theirs to claim and self-govern, leaving France completely out of the conversation. I hoped. It was at this time I would often leave the Arab army to run smaller operations, gathering intelligence and scouting potential targets. On one such operation in the town of Dara in Syria, I was captured by Turkish soldiers. What happened next was one of the darkest moments of my life. A Turkish officer took a long look at my white skin and spoke of how fine my hands and feet were. I was whipped and beaten and worse. Three soldiers took me away where I was dragged and, well, Afterwards, I was allowed to escape. It's certainly a dark part of Lawrence's story. But nobody actually knows if he was sexually assaulted. It was not witnessed by anyone, and it's possible Lawrence was never even near Dara. Some say this was all an invention that he'd fantasized about this horrible night to offset the guilt he felt for deceiving the Arabs, and that this possibly imagined abuse would be his penance for his actions in Arabia. Others say it could have happened just as Lawrence tells it, and it left a lasting mark on his psyche, a mark that would contribute to his unusual behavior later in life. Whether it happened or not, 
he emerged a changed man. From that point on, he was more reckless with his own life and the lives of others. He attacked a Turkish train despite being so short of weapons that some of his men had to throw rocks. He sometimes would tell his soldiers to take no prisoners. He became more unhinged. It was though he was desperately trying to lead the Arabs to Damascus before the British arrived, and that he believed his double dealing would somehow be vindicated. It was also at this time that I met an American named Lowell Thomas in Jerusalem. He was a journalist, maybe more of a showman. In any case, he took a great interest in me. Perhaps he'd never seen a British officer in robes before. But he and his cameraman followed me for a week, taking film and photographs of our campaign. I did not realize then what a profound impact that week would have on me after the war. Through 1918, the revolt drove north in Syria. And finally, in October, the Arab armies captured Damascus. But they would only rule for a short time. Great Britain's promise to the Arabs was hollow. My role in it was regrettable, but my position was impossible. How could I be loyal to the British and the Arabs when they wanted two different outcomes? I made promises in good faith, promises for which thousands of men gave their lives. But I and the Arabian people were deceived. But after you learned you were deceived, your tactics didn't change, did they? The outcome of the war was a victory that felt like a defeat for the Arabs. I returned to England. Then came what should have been a great honor. In October of 1918, King George V invited me to Buckingham Palace. I expected because of my expertise, I was being summoned as a consultant in the post-war negotiations to discuss the drawing of the new borders in Arabia. But that was not the honor I was to receive. Instead, the king wanted to present me with medals and a knighthood for my service. As a younger man, I was captivated by medieval castles, knights and kings. But when presented with this honor, I refused. I objected so strongly to our nation's role in Arabia that I could not bear such an honor. I walked away, and His Majesty was left holding the box with the medals in his hand. I remained a champion of Arab independence. At the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, Faisal was not even given a seat. I went to the conference as a member of his party. I argued to make their voice heard. The Arab people deserve better. They will not be ignored. We owe it to them. But in the end, I too was largely ignored. Faisal became king of Syria for a few months, until he was deposed by the French. Then the British installed him as king of Iraq. Europeans were drawing the borders in Arabia, and I worried that no good would come of that. No argument there, Lawrence. Britain's breach of their promise has been felt for the last hundred years. I had already spent most of my life searching for somewhere I belong in Great Britain, 
only to find that where I truly belonged was Arabia. But I was once again lost. My reputation was ruined among the Arabs. I was considered a traitor to their cause. I joined the colonial office in London as an advisor to Winston Churchill, but it was not a fit for me. Re-examining the colonies after my role in their creation was hard to take. So I began writing my account of the Arab Revolt. I spent months piecing together my notes and letters into a memoir some 250,000 words in total. It was a tremendous effort, and then it was gone. Eight of the ten books I'd written were lost when I misplaced my briefcase while changing trains in Reading. My life's work, my account of my greatest adventure, lost. How could I be so careless? The lion's share of my first draft and even the notes I took in Arabia were gone. I was devastated, but what could I do? I set to work on it again. 700 pages from memory. And in three months, I had a draft that became a book entitled Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It got mixed reviews. Some called it a work of fantasy, but I stand by it. I was still trying to find my identity when a new, rather silly one presented itself. That American journalist I met in Jerusalem, Lowell Thomas, began giving lectures about Arabia, accompanied by the film and photographs he'd brought home. After some success in America, he brought the show to London. I went to see it a number of times, though it wasn't exactly to my taste. Of particular intrigue were the pictures of me wearing robes and riding a camel. Somewhat ridiculously, the public began to fall in love with this romantic character, Lawrence of Arabia. Would you believe it? The truth is, I was unnerved by the attention. I believe my story is of great interest to the public, but I don't see why I would be. I never wished to be a celebrity. Oh, no. He says he's annoyed by the photographers on the street and the gossip in the newspapers. He wants the attention, but he doesn't want people to know he wants it. Some say he's got a rare ability to back into the spotlight. Like so many of the returning soldiers, Lawrence suffered from the ongoing mental effects of the war. Add to that the guilt he felt over his divided loyalties during the Arab Revolt and the pressure of being thrust into the national spotlight. He'd become a hero to many, but it was at a great cost to many others, and that weighed on him. It wasn't easy for him to go on living. With nowhere else to turn and wanting to simply disappear, what did he do? He re-enlisted in the military, but under an assumed name. I spent time in the Royal Air Force under the surname Ross and in the Royal Tank Corps as Shaw, but this only led to more frustration. Newspapers uncovered my new identities. I could not remain anonymous. There was nowhere I could go to escape Lawrence of Arabia. I sometimes felt that perhaps I belonged in an asylum instead of in the armed forces. So I retired from the military and lived alone. And as it turned out, I would die alone too.
My love of adventure never subsided. Far away from the shifting sands of the Middle East, now living in the lush green hills of England. I loved the countryside. A vast landscape that had seemingly not changed in hundreds of years. Throughout my life, I never managed to grasp the one feeling I always yearned for. To belong. But the wind on my face as I rode my motorcycle down the long, twisting roads of the English countryside allowed me to forget that. The legend of Lawrence has far outpaced the real man. He had a vision for the Middle East, a vision that some might argue could have prevented much of the turmoil created by Western interference. But he didn't have the influence to accomplish it. T.E. Lawrence died in a motorcycle crash in 1935. He was 46. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast, produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is series director Chris Kelly, series producers Lauren Berkovich, and Michael Tanker-Grand. Executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Dave Schumker. Lawrence of Arabia is played by Raj Paul. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Associate producers are Dave Schumker and Nessa Araf. Translated by Abdullah Al-Masalam. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer for this series. Fact-checking by Joy Lee. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Al Jazeera's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. <laughs>